0: Welcome everybody who's here tonight. Tonight's CCU is Citizens Climate Report from COP27. And what's next? And we get to hear from Joe Robertson, who is the Executive Director of Citizens Climate International. And I'm really excited to hear about his adventures, large and small, um, on the other side of the world. So Joe, thank you for being here and take it away.
1: Thank you, Tamara. So welcome everybody, I'm so glad you could be here and thank you for your interest in what Citizens Climate has been doing in the UN climate change negotiations process. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of what I'm going to share you've heard, because we've been putting out newsletters and and blog posts and sharing about this, but uh, what I want to do is talk a little bit about talk a little bit about how the United Nations process works, what we do there and whether the COP27 did something good for our future. Um, First of all, I think it's important to understand that everybody who was in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, which is at the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula, uh, sort of between Africa and the Arabian Peninsula, uh, everyone going there faced some serious logistical challenges. It was crazy expensive. Lodging was very hard to come by. Flights were hard to come by because it's basically the only place you can go in this region, and uh, there aren't so many flights to get uh, 35,000 people into a small conference venue all at once. Um, that made it difficult for people who were coming from indigenous communities, for most young people, for a lot of uh, activists, even for governments from, uh, from developing countries that don't necessarily have a huge travel budget, that impacts their ability to participate. Uh, just to give you a little, look at where we were, uh, in the distance there, you can see Tiran Island. Tiran is an island that's basically halfway between the Sinai Peninsula and Saudi Arabia. And so you can see Tiran Island right there. And from Tehran, you can see Saudi Arabia. Uh, that's the part of the world that th- this took place in, kind of right at the northern edge of the Red Sea. Um, I always think that before we talk about how it all works, it's important to think about what's actually at stake in the process. And here you can see uh, a kind of you know, live action drawing of a, of a discussion on what's called the global stock take, which is a, an examination of how we're doing collectively, globally on climate change uh, solutions. Um, what's at stake you know, for billions of people around the world? The future availability of food, the livability of their communities, not only can they stay there while some sort of disaster is going on, but will they be able to live there at all in a few months or a few years? Uh, The general opportunity for well-being and security, you know entire nations and regions are being destabilized uh, by climate impacts. In the US, we're used to thinking about the high cost of climate impacts, like what's happening in California right now, and also the, the tragedy that affects those people who lose their lives or their property. Uh, but we aren't necessarily familiar with the idea that an entire region can be politically destabilized by those climate impacts. Um, What happens in these rooms creates all of those ripple effects for people. And so here's just a window into some of those rooms. Uh, The upper left, you see an event where the Global Center on Adaptation, the African Development Bank, convened uh, something like 15 heads of state the Secretary General of the United Nations, right in the middle at the top, you see in the white blazer, the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, um, the head of the World Trade Organization was there. In the upper right, you see um, an event where the Good Food Finance Network High Ambition Group, a group of companies and financial institutions announced new targets for sustainable food finance, covering $108 billion in business activity. of a big uh, a big deal and it's one of those things that at an event like this is almost below the radar as big as that sounds. Um, In the lower left you see uh, the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate John Kerry uh, speaking to a huge crowd at the uh, the U.S. Center. The U.S. Center is one of these um, pavilion spaces where you have informal events not negotiations but it's one of the more respected and attended pavilions because it usually has a lot of science, a lot of economics, a lot of experts, and here you see high level political leaders too. And then in the bottom right, you see one of the negotiations. This is a negotiating session around article six of the Paris Agreement, which uh, is about international cooperation that includes carbon pricing. Uh, and we'll get into a little bit of that later on. Um, and Now I wanna just share how the process works. Uh, So at the bottom, I put there COP means Conference of Parties. And the parties are the countries that have ratified the 1992 United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. They are parties to the treaty. Um, The COP is the conference of all of the parties. There's 197 parties, 196 of them are countries. And the 197th is the European Union, which as the world's only supranational government, also engages alongside of its member states. Um, Really important thing about this process is the final agreement has to be by consensus. So all 197 parties have to say, yes, we like this, or no, we don't object. Um, So that's a really important part of why this is such a complicated process. Another reason it's complicated is because it's not actually one COP, it's five COPs. The annual climate negotiations, the ones that happened this year in Egypt, you know, uh, last year in Glasgow, uh, in 2019 in Spain, that conference is actually five separate agendas where the 197 parties are meeting and making consensus deci- decisions about a long and detailed agenda. And that final agreement for each of those five processes will basically rewrite international law. Uh, And so it's complicated. And there's a lot of fighting that goes on right till the end. Um, And it usually goes over time as it did this year. Um, Now, who participates in the process? The parties, the countries. Observers, that's people like us, civil society, advocates, experts, scientists, we're all observers. Um, United Nations agencies and other intergovernmental agencies and the press, and uh, the different category determines how much access you have to each thing. The parties can be in any room in the entire negotiating space uh, except a room that is only a smaller group of parties, like a regional block or uh, you know a group that negotiates together but might be not regional but, but global, uh, like the least developed countries group, for instance. Um, the UN agencies can be in any room except a room that certain parties have requested be only among parties. And then observers have m- more limitation. There are rooms we can't be in, uh, but we usually have access to knowledge about what's happening there. We can read the documents, and it's a good—it's a—it's a good thing when you're part of an organization that says we're about relationships because those relationships allow you to talk to the people who are there and learn from them, and vice versa. They ask you for your insights and. That's something we spend time doing in our our team. The press have the least access. And I, I emphasize that because um, I think a lot of people believe that when they read a, a press article about the cop, they're getting the whole story. And the, there are good reasons why they don't have more access. But one of the side effects is that even really excellent journalists can't see the whole picture. Um, in order to write a comprehensive story about just one day, you'd have to be in 20 different rooms simultaneously for several hours that day. It's just not feasible. Um, So you're only ever going to get part of the story through the press. Uh, And that's just because it's a big world and it's a complex issue. So let's talk a little bit about what our delegation did, the Citizens Climate Delegation. And that's Citizens Climate Education, Citizens Climate International, Citizens Climate Lobby, our volunteers. We had 22 people on the ground that were either using our badges as observers or coordinating directly with us, some who were members of party delegations. They were technically in a negotiating position. We had 14 additional close collaborators that were sort of working like part of our team. Um, And then we had 10 more team members who were providing remote support. So we had 46 total team members on site and remote. Uh, And that's, that's really helpful for us being able to process information and share insights with people so that they value what we're seeing and what we're doing and we can be part of a constructive process. Uh, Our team personally joined events and meetings involving more than 30 government ministers and heads of state, engaged effectively with negotiators and UN leaders, contributed substantively to the planning and content of meetings involving another 40 ministers, mayors and senior diplomats uh, and covered issues including decarbonization, climate adaptation, funding to address and overcome climate-related loss and damage, food systems, human health, civic engagement, and the transformation of finance. Um, it's, it's kind of astonishing when you look at that collage of, the, of, of people and everybody doing their own thing in different spaces and uh, in, in the chaos of this global conference. Some really important things happen and and we have been able to be part of some really effective work um, and it's down to the way that our team works the way that you all do the the training and the co- the collaboration that you do um our our culture as an organization or a family of organizations allows us to do that kind of thing um i just want to if, if you can see at the top sort of center there's a picture where you see a number of youth climate advocates from Africa. Uh, David Michael Tarangwa is there, you might recognize him. And then there's a woman there who is uh, Senator Mary Coyle. She's the chair of the Canadian Senate Climate Caucus. And this photo is just an example of the kind of interconnection across countries, across continents, between generations with people who are in the negotiating process and people who are observing and facilitating. Um, That kind of connection of people to try to expand the opportunity for good working relationships, uh, carrying something forward from these processes. That's one of the things we do in the midst of all of the the work is to try to make those connections. Um, Now, another thing that our team did, and this is kind of amazing as well, and I I have to give credit to uh, Isatis and Solemi uh, and Monica, who were the three people who mainly were leading this. The People's Pavilion is a digital platform that we built using the Mighty Networks system. And uh, through that platform, people were able to access live streams of more than 500 events connected to the COP. Uh, There was an online community of 400 people, more than 4,500 interactions, and near round-the-clock engagement throughout the two weeks of the COP. We had a smartphone app that made it possible for people anywhere in the world to engage. Um, And this is now becoming something of a go-to model where we're gonna see the People's Pavilion expanded and we're gonna see satellite events happening in other parts of the world where people are able to kind of tune in and be part of the COP process. Now, I wanna jump over to policy for a minute and highlight something that we did in 2014 and 2015. Um, Our international team at that time Uh, including volunteers, worked week after week after week in something called the carbon pricing work stream to develop principles that could essentially adapt the virtues of fee and dividend to all types of carbon pricing. And those became the Paris principles. You see price pollution, Add momentum. That's something where, for instance, if you put money back into a local economy and it has a carbon price attached to it, it's going to do good to help the whole economy go green. Um, reduce emissions, internalize inefficiencies. The businesses that generate those costs should pay for them. And spread by aligning. And that's the border adjustment, of course. But there are other ways in which spreading by aligning comes up. Um, you know, Article 6 of the Paris Agreement was carefully crafted to allow for carbon pricing, even though that word never, those words never appear. Uh, and the reason that carbon pricing never appears in the text is because if it did, there were a number of countries that make their living exporting oil who threatened to essentially disrupt and, and collapse this entire process. Um, now, somehow it would have moved forward, but it would have been less ambitious. It would have been less united. We'd have less of a global climate action law, essentially. Uh, And so paragraph 2 of Article 6 governs emissions trading markets of all different kinds around the world. Paragraph 4 creates a UN-administered emissions trading market. What's interesting to us is paragraph 8, which focuses on non-market approaches. That basically means everything countries can do to collaborate that is not emissions trading. I'm just gonna briefly talk about some of the things that fall into that. I'll run through it quickly and then move on, but but you can dig deeper into this non-market approaches space. It's where the policies that we tend to, to like fit. Um, standards and regulations uh, in finance and other fields uh, requiring decarbonization or disclosure, climate income policies, via and dividend, border adjustments related to carbon emissions and other policies, Floor price measures, that's where countries come together to say, let's agree that there should be a minimum price. And according to the International Monetary Fund, that minimum price could fluctuate. Poor countries or lower emitting countries might have a lower price because they have less work to do to decarbonize. Uh, But floor price measures fit there. Accounting and avoidance. So can you show that a particular action actually avoided real world emissions or is it just a claim? Can you verify that? Labeling and tracking, whether that's products, so we know the product is carbon free or clean or has 100% clean energy behind it or something like that, or whether it's some other type of financial intervention where we know that this money or this entity or this portfolio is meant to do good for the planet or for people. Data integration, because if you're going to have green finance, you need to be able to connect earth science data to financial data. Countries have to work together to make that work. Um, Multilateral coherence. That's another way of thinking about aligning policies, but it's not exactly border adjustments. It can be a lot of other things, including trade uh, negotiations, banking regulations, et cetera. Um, Investing in nature is another kind of non market approach, right? So you can invest in nature with offsets, but our position has generally been that that limits the amount of investment that would go to nature. Instead of a few billion dollars, what if we had a third of the financial wealth in the world, what the Glasgow Financial Alliance promised in 2021, which is 130 trillion dollars. So green finance is a lot more money uh, for nature than uh, offsets, for instance. Fiscal rescue funding, when the international community bails out a country in, in debt distress, food systems innovation, transition assistance, and all of the reforms that are now happening to be sensitive to climate vulnerability, value that vulnerability and make sure that countries that are heavily impacted are not paying premium to the polluters that are harming them. Now, this work goes on year round and it happens in places like the room you're seeing there, this beautiful room in Bonn, Germany, which is where the United Nations Climate Secretariat is headquartered. It's called the Chamber Hall. But it used to be the parliament of West Germany when the Berlin Wall had separated uh, the country and the democratic government was in Bonn. Um, Not only do major negotiations happen there, but sometimes small group meetings happen there. And you notice on the floor, you can see rainbows on the floor. Uh, Really serious work happens in this room as it did during uh, when it was the West German parliament, but it's been designed to foster dialogue and the atrium roof Uh, is designed to refract rainbows across the room throughout the day. Uh, It's an amazing space to be in and it tends to welcome people into dialogue. Um, There are other rooms where these talks happen. Uh, They're not all as beautiful or spectacular. Some of them are square. Some of them are not pleasant at all. Uh, But the spirit is always supposed to be that kind of inclusive around the room, everybody having a voice, everybody welcome uh, to speak kind of atmosphere. Now, sometimes in what you call an open dialogue, you hear civil society observers, stakeholders, scientists, and experts talking to governments, questioning them, answering them, providing insight into uh, stakeholder views. And, um, you know, I just want to take a couple of minutes here to show you all a video. Um, I tend not to like showing videos and presentations, but this one I really like to share because. This is the voices of stakeholders from our network around the world. It's uh, women climate activists who participated in a global open dialogue called the Talanoa style dialogue. Uh, It's a Fijian word that was introduced into the climate negotiations a few years ago. And they're telling us about what we need if we're gonna be uh, a climate resilient society.
0: look at climate change, it's affected us, it's affected me and you, it's affected the people around us, it's affected how we live. We need climate emergency. The women are being affected by climate change differently. A woman will wake up early in the morning to work for a long distance just to get water. <laughs> This is not a story of the past, it is
1: still happening, with record droughts and extreme heat being reported all around the world this very year. You might have seen headlines on droughts and floods in India, Pakistan, and many other countries, though these are particularly notable due to their rather large populations and already scorching heat.
0: We en at punto point where, if we don't take immediate action to limit the greenhouse gas emissions, we are going to find ourselves in a very catastrophic situation. Climate change in Ghana has been manifested greatly through our rainfall patterns, that is causing flood and droughts. Nuestros recursos pesqueros están disminuyendo. Los hábitats están siendo destruidos y las concentraciones de CO2 están aumentando. Climate emergency is real and it is here. Previously, we used to have two rainy seasons, but now we only have one rainy season. When the rains come, they come with disaster. And all this is because of our human actions, what we have done, our unsustainable utilization of the natural resources. And so what do we have to do? we need to prevent warming beyond 1.5 degrees celsius by reducing emissions we need to get into more uh, partnerships uh, into more collaborations and work together towards achieving a common goal we are going to get there by uh, lobbying and uh, asking our governments to pass policies that favor that will work on climate change also need to transition to renewable energy and then reduce our dependency on fossil fuels. We need to conserve and restore our natural spaces on land and in water. There are strong measures contra carbon emissions to save the ocean. I hope that all of Sweden will find the motivation to actually change their lifestyle to help hjälpa till att climate change. And I hope that we will do it with joy, together. We also have to get everybody on board. We realize that climate change cannot be done by one person.
1: It is not going to simply go away, and billions will be or have already been affected. That includes both you and me. Thank you. So oh, I get chills every time I, I see that video. That that process was put together uh, by Kathy Orlando as part of her work as a, uh, a women and gender advisor to the G7 uh, international process. And we then created that video as an expression of the dialogue among these stakeholders so that we could deliver it to the international community at various meetings, including in the COP27 environment. And so I wanna highlight the fact that thing I said earlier about consensus, each country has a voice. So everyone who spoke in that video is represented by someone in this negotiating process who in theory should be working to make their climate future more resilient, safer, uh, more prosperous. Um, And of course, that's not always the case. Uh, All of us have governments that sometimes get it right and sometimes get it wrong. Uh, And collectively, it's hard for those governments to always get it right. So um, the fact that observers can help the negotiators get it more right more often is is really important. And we take seriously at Citizens Climate that in some ways we're working to represent the voices of people from our network, uh, including all of you. Um, Now, I want to just highlight the fact that in this particular negotiating room, you can see very clearly in the middle there, the word Chad, that's the nation of Chad in Africa. Um, That's the nameplate for that country. And that negotiator will raise that flag or turn it on its end to request the floor. And the facilitator of that particular negotiation will then call on each of the the negotiators who have raised their flag. Uh, You can see here, Uh, instructions are actually put on the screen for the negotiators, because sometimes they're really new to the process. They may never have been to a climate negotiation before. They may never have negotiated this subject matter before. Uh, And yet they are working on something of this global existential uh, consequence. Um, And so it's important that We find ways to develop relationships where the people we're talking to trust that we're telling them something that's real and valuable and not just self-interested or uh, sort of pushing a point of view. Um, Now, we had a huge breakthrough this year in that part of our work. Uh, We worked with the prestigious Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University uh, to provide structured deep dive training to, to civil society advocates, negotiators, scholars, and students aspiring to be part of this kind of work someday. Um, The roster of instructors in those workshops uh, included former senior US and UK diplomats, a leading negotiator from Bangladesh who has represented more than 100 countries in the negotiating process, the former environment minister of Chile, the former president of Costa Rica. Uh, There were also climate finance experts, uh, scientists, Uh, experts in mutual gains negotiating strategy, um, and some of our own team. And uh, after these, the two rounds we did, once before the mid-year meetings in June and once before the COP in November, um, we're now on track to expand this work in 2023 to an initiative that will do those trainings, have some in-person components, and also help to expand the actual teams of people in the process. So we're working to make not just make democracy work as it should, we're working to make diplomacy work as it should, if we can, from the perspective of conscientious stakeholders. Um, I'd like to share a few outcomes. You know, The COP27 achieved historic progress in addressing vulnerability, integrating food, ecosystems, watersheds, and the ocean might sound reasonable, To an outsider that those things should all be part of the process, but these treaties tend to be divided up. So there are places where you talk about food, there are places where you talk about nature, there's places where you talk about the ocean. Uh, The COP27 saw more integration than we've seen before and cooperative climate transformation including those article 6.8 non-market approaches got uh, a big boost. We had the first consensus agreement, all 197 parties agreeing to create a fund to respond to, reduce, and overcome climate-related loss and damage, that's really important. Um, and you know, it's one of those things that, as part of the CCI team, we're all happy to hear from uh, CCL volunteers who want to know more about that. Why is it important? Why is it not just a morally good thing, but also, practically speaking, it makes uh, the most sense of any option to make sure we do that. Um, and then. You know, there was also a transitional committee established for the creation of that fund. and what's so important about this transitional committee is they're not just there wasn't just a decision to establish a fund to address loss and damage so that the most vulnerable, most impacted countries have some relief. Um, there's a transitional committee that will identify funding streams through existing institutions this year, starting in March, so that there can be delivery of resources to people in need even before the fund is established. Uh, that is a breakthrough as well. It's, it's the international community looking at ways to be flexible, to be creative and to put people first. Um, now on that subject, you know, human rights uh, was recognized as a cross-cutting concern for all climate action. Now that has been done before in kind of general language. But throughout the negotiations at COP27, we heard negotiators from all different kinds of country backgrounds talking about the importance of this, talking about the importance of including stakeholders and dialogue and and listening to people, not just in terms of what they're experiencing from climate impacts, but what they want to experience as we change the world to deal with climate change. Uh, Also, the right to a clean, healthy environment was recognized by all 196 nations participating in this process and the EU. Now, it was already recognized by the UN General Assembly, uh, which includes most of those countries, 193, but the fact that it's been reiterated, it's been confirmed as part of the climate process is really important. I think some of you may know that you know, the climate transition isn't necessarily going to be all clean or environmentally friendly. So the fact that the right to a clean, healthy environment is now universally recognized is really significant. Um, and then you know, the reform of international financial institutions so that they're better suited to value and respond to vulnerability, uh, address interconnected crisis and invest in global public goods. That process is ongoing right now. It's gathered a lot of momentum. Uh, there were you know unprecedented sums of uh, international finance were delivered to to drive that uh, reform forward so that countries that are experiencing high vulnerability, high risk, high cost, and high debt all at the same time have relief and can actually go forward and do something good for their own climate future. Um, and now, finally, I wanna highlight something that we did at Citizens Climate International. And this started with uh, our network around the world in 2020 when the pandemic had set in and life was disrupted everywhere. We had these weekly meetings where we were talking about what were people living through. And it led to something called the Principles for Reinventing Prosperity, a sort of build back better plan from the community level point of view. And uh, earlier this year in a, in a meeting focusing on climate finance, subject came up, does anyone know of a way for people who have views about climate policy to influence climate finance decision-making? And so we started working with people to create a concept around participatory delivery of capital to communities. And in November during the COP, we launched uh, the Reinventing Prosperity Report on the capital to communities strategy. Basically, it's saying, let ordinary people in their communities engage with public officials, engage with financial institutions, and help to shape the things that will be happening to them in their climate future and in their economic future. Start to use that as a standard, and you'll know more about whether people are doing what they said they're doing. You'll be able to track performance. You'll be able to know if people are being helped or harmed. You'll be able to find out from the people affected whether it's easier to get a job or harder to find food or whatever you need to know um, if you just let people engage. Um, And we have received tremendous feedback from this uh, because some of the very institutions that have resisted citizen engagement historically, thinking of it as inefficient we're thinking of it as somehow parallel or a luxury or not what business is all about, are now understanding um, that having that insight makes it more likely you will avoid making mistakes. Um, and we're at a point where the climate crisis is deep enough that we really can't afford to make mistakes. Uh, so, you know, that to me is... Um, it's where I'd like to sort of end this presentation to say with all the other things that happened that are highly technical, an underlying story that should become more significant this year um, on the way to the next COP is this, this change in mindset where citizen participation is more and more welcome uh, when just a few years ago it was, it was seen as problematic Uh, And I put that down to the good work that people like all of you do, where uh, you show that it works and you you show people around the world that decision makers who listen to you do a better job. Uh, So thank you everybody for for listening.
0: Thank you everybody. Have a wonderful rest of your evening. And um, I wish you well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are
1: creating the political will for a livable world.